healthy from the inside out. This is Valley Well Valle Salud, a health and wellness information program brought to you by ValleyWise Health and District Medical Group. Each week, we go in-depth with different healthcare experts on some of your top health questions, getting answers to help you live your best life. Hello and welcome to Valley Well Valle Salud. I'm your host, Lauren Vargas. While COVID-19 certainly took over this year as the most talked about health crisis, and for good reason, that doesn't mean other major health concerns just disappeared. So today we're touching on another big issue in the U.S., and that's the opioid epidemic. In the last 20 years, almost 450,000 people died from an overdose involving an opioid. So how are we battling this issue and what do you need to know as a patient? Joining us to discuss is Dr. Andrew Carrasco. He's a district medical group family medicine physician at Valleywise Community Health Center South Central. Dr. Carrasco, thank you for joining us. Hi, Lauren. Hey, thanks for bringing me back. Of course. Yeah. Fun fact, you were actually our first guest on this show when we started this radio show and podcast back in, what was it, February, March? So I'm glad we didn't scare you away too bad. (laughs) No, no. On the contrary, uh, you know, I think uh, actually I got quite a bit of patients who loved the the radio talk show. So uh, thank you for your work. Absolutely. Well, thanks for being here. So most of us have heard about the opioid epidemic, you know, several years ago, but what actually are opioids? Is it the same thing as narcotics? You know, it's an umbrella term. So opioids are a compound that reduce pain, and induce pleasure. Our body produces them naturally, actually. They're, they're called endogenous, um, naturally created opioids, and these are um, also called endorphins. Every time I eat an Oreo, I release endorphins. Or every time I or anybody kisses someone that they really like, they release these endorphins. Um, so it, it's a umbrella term. And to step back and give you a, a little bit of a historical context, in according to ancient Egyptian medical texts over 3000 years ago, a flower plant was crushed up and boiled and the extract was used for remedies. And this was the poppy seed, uh, also called opium. A lot of your listeners may have seen really old Western movies uh, where a guy has a hand infection, goes to a doctor, you know, the doctor uncorks this old jar of clear liquid, tells the patient to drink it, and wash it down with whiskey, and then proceeds to saw off the hand. I know that's gruesome, but that was that was a treatment, you know. And opium was uh, used and instrumental as part of the treatment to have the doctor cure the ailment, whether it is to take off the infection or to fix the broken bones. You know, this was instrumental part of historical medicine. Um, you know, this is a time that was predating antibiotics and predating the imaging modalities that we have now, like ultrasound and CTs. Things have changed since then. We we no longer are um, uh, that gruesome. Um, and in the 1900s, morphine was later isolated from the opium. Uh, and then in the 20th century, drug companies made synthetic substances uh, like oxycodone oxycodone, hydrocodone, heroin, and fentanyl. And and these are, as you classify, narcotics. And all these substances, uh, whether synthetic, as in man-made like fentanyl, or derived from opium, like morphine, all these compounds are opioids. And whether they are legal or illicit, opioid drugs are effective painkillers, but also highly addictive. 
So it's definitely not a new concept, but it's certainly evolved over the centuries. Um, why are they considered so addictive? How does that work? They are not addictive if prescribed correctly and under the certain circumstances. So currently, a doctor will prescribe opioids for short-lived injuries or pain. And there really is no concern for addiction. For example, after surgery or after an accident for a broken bone or upon a sudden tear of a muscle in an athlete, for example. Uh, another kind of patient that I have on opioids are cancer patients that have pancreatic lung colon cancer. And if you know anybody, you'll know that this is a very painful disease and opioids are very effective. So in and of themselves, they are not solely addicting. When we talk about opioid addiction, what we really are getting at is uh, opioid use disorder. And, you know, I could give you the doctor meaning of this medical term, but what I'd rather start with is the patient definition. And as you said, 2.5 million Americans are living with opioid use disorder right now. And their definition of opioid use disorder would be, or opioid addiction would be, I don't want it, but I got to have it. That's how they would define it. And the opioid use disorder has caused the overdose death. So I want to put the death rate in a little bit of context. You know, currently COVID-19 pandemic has taken the lives of 200,000 uh, Americans. Since the addiction of opioids has taken off in the mid-1980s, 75,000 people have died from overdose since, since then, yearly. So we have and we will see more total deaths from overdose than by COVID-19. And when we talk about the opioid epidemic, we end up talking way too much about opioids and not about the people. The people with opioid use disorder live in such a way, and this gets at your question of what the addiction is, they live in such a way where their priority is to just feel normal and avoid feel, feeling withdrawals. And to understand why opioids are so addictive, we have to understand what addiction is. And the issue is not so much an opioid epidemic, but rather an epidemic of the disease of addiction. So addiction is a chronic brain disease. It's not a failure of the will. It's not a character flaw. The actual brain disease that long-term illicit opioids causes involves neurotransmitters malfunctioning in parts of the brain, um, these important parts of the brain called amygdala and nucleus accumbens. Essentially, think about brain circuitry being rewired. And it's this rewiring that leads to the risky use of other substances like methamphetamine, cocaine, and binge drinking alcohol while also using opioids. And it's this polysubstance, Lauren, that is the driving force of these deaths. So to drive this point further, I want to tell you about Maricopa County's overdose death report. In 2019, 91% of overdose deaths involved more than one drug, and 92% of overdose deaths were determined to be accidental. So first of all, there's more than one drug, it's opioid and something else, and they're accidental. No one is trying to overdose. The brain disease itself increases your chance of doing risky things, while also downplaying the reality of that risk. So we must understand that opioid use disorder is causing the brain to operate differently. Now, I know 
that some listeners might not like hearing that. There's, there's this discomfort. You know, some claim that viewing addiction in this way minimizes the important social and environmental causes, as though saying addiction is a disorder of brain circuits means that social stresses like loneliness, poverty, violence, and other psychological and environmental factors do not play a role. And that's not what I'm saying. They do play a role. In fact, the dominant theoretical network or framework in addiction science today is this idea that mind and body are at play. And there is a complex interaction between the biology of the brain and the environment of the person. We're talking with family medicine physician, Dr. Andrew Carrasco with Valleywise Health and District Medical Group about opioid addiction. If you or someone you know needs help, you can always call and make an appointment with a district medical group provider at Valleywise Health by calling 833-855-9973, Monday through Friday from 7.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or you can visit valleywisehealth.org and click the book appointment button. If you do find yourself in an emergency, please call 911, or you can use the national helpline um, by calling 800-662-HELP. That's 800-662-HELP. So why is the shame and stigma of opioid use disorder um, dangerous? You know, why is it important to use certain words rather than others? Mm. You know, it's, it's the same reason shame and stigma is dangerous for anything it doesn't fix the issue and it tends to drive the issue deeper into an inaccessible area. Language matters and social psychologists, scientists have determined this. They have studied this phenomenon many times in many settings and they've discovered that the words we use impact the behavior and actions we take. So the words abuser and abuse, for example, evoke an automatic negative thought about individuals with substance-related problems. You know, by using more accurate words, we essentially cause less stigma, and that less stigma means and translates to people being more likely to seek help, to stay in treatment, and to achieve long-term remission. So what are some signs and symptoms that you or someone you know might be addicted to opioids and need some help? The major signs and symptoms would be someone continuing to use despite losing control in their life, in their work lives or relationship life or legal troubles. Someone might have repeated infections in the arms or legs uh, for those who use intravenous needles. And then there's someone that um, is going through repeated cycles of withdrawals uh, withdrawal symptoms like nausea, sweating, headache, abdominal pain uh, when they do not use. You know, I, I would encourage your listeners to rather than rather than be a detective or a pseudo doctor and figure out signs and symptoms, I, I would encourage them to initiate a conversation instead. You know, there is a taboo of talking about bad things or uncomfortable things, and that's well grounded. It's uncomfortable, but that is the most ineffective thing to do to help someone. Uh, we need to go there with our friends and family. We need to ask, how are you doing? And genuinely expect them to tell you how they are really doing. We need to ask, how are you feeling? Are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling suicidal? Are you using opioids off the street? And I think um, that would be more important as a starter 
to know rather than knowing the signs and symptoms. That's really good advice. So I want to introduce Chencho Flores. He's our audio producer for the show, and he has a question for you. My question goes back to the prescription opioids. Brett Favre, who used to be the quarterback for the Packers, you know, Hall of Famer. At one point in his career, he said he was taking up to 15 Vicodins a day. How do we get to that point? How does somebody go from from being a healthy? I mean, this was in the in the middle of his career, but being a, a somebody that you would see as a specimen of health to that point. The things we know now were not the things we knew then. So in the 1980s, pharmaceutical companies marketed opioids aggressively, while at the same time downplaying their addictive potential. And who was tricked? Well, the medical community doctors and the community. Since then, we have been doing lots of studies as we often do with medications. And what we found out is just how great this addictive potential is. And we also found out how ineffective these opioids were for treating disorders that used to be treated with them. This is the advent uh, of evidence-based medicine. And I've kind of been throwing that phrase out. And this is a phrase that doctors will use when they are more focused about patient-oriented outcomes, things that really matter, not just numbers and values, things like how risky is a medicine? Uh, Does the medicine work? How long should we be on it? And these were things that were not in the forefront of pharmaceutical companies or the medical community when we first had this medication in in markets, these narcotics. You know, nowadays it will be very hard pressed to find a physician who will give, you know, Vicodin to an athlete uh, for, you know, more than two weeks. This just won't happen anymore. Um, And it's because we have enough evidence to show that we have better choices. You kind of talked a little bit about how they're they're not prescribing so much. So one time I, I was having issues with a tooth my dentist wasn't fixing the problem. So I was driving, I randomly stopped at a dentist office and I asked him to look at me and the guy looks at my tooth and goes, there's nothing wrong with it, but I can write you a prescription for uh, oxycodone. Luckily for me, that stuff, uh, (laughs) it it has a really bad effect on me, so I can't take it. But are people still writing prescriptions kind of recklessly like that? or, or Or it seems like they've been pulled back a little bit. Yeah, they've been pulled back from different angles. So from policymakers, uh, from which providers can prescribe uh, extended periods of opioids, uh, which indications, medical indications, whether, you know, toothache, cancer patient, you know, which patient is more appropriate. Uh, we've also had healthcare systems implement a internal kind of checks and balance, um, a database that we could see where a patient is getting opioids if they're getting opioids from different healthcare institutions. So there's been a lot of work in blunting the misuse of prescribing or overprescribing. Um, but what that leaves us is, and you know, I'm glad that uh, you uh, were not uh, addicted to the opioids, um, but what that leaves us is a group of individuals who currently are. And so even though these policies and regulations have helped blunt the patients from getting on and getting addicted, we still are left with uh, uh, 2.5 million people that uh, need treatment. 
If you're just tuning in with us, we're talking with District Medical Group Family Medicine Physician, Dr. Andrew Carrasco about opioid use disorder. You can make an appointment with Dr. Carrasco or any of our fantastic District Medical Group providers by calling 833-855-9973, Monday through Friday from 7.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or you can visit valleywisehealth.org and click the book appointment button. So let's talk about if someone has been, let's say, diagnosed with opioid use disorder, what are the next steps? What treatment options are available? So this is something I'm really passionate about. It's uh, medication-assisted treatment. And as a doctor, I get excited about anything that can help treat disease effectively and is also low risk in terms of adverse effects and is also covered by insurance. I think any doctor would get excited by uh, those characteristics. These medications are buprenorphine, methadone, and naltrexone. And these group of medications are formally called medication-assisted treatment. Um, only authorized clinics can dispense, can dispense methadone. Uh, buprenorphine is available at clinics like the one I work at at ValleyWise, but the doctor needs special training to prescribe this. And naltrexone can be prescribed at most clinics. Now, I want to highlight buprenorphine, also called Suboxone, because it's becoming more accessible at your primary care doctor's office. Buprenorphine and the other medication-assisted treatment are evidence-based medications that are highly successful. And this is in sharp contrast with rehab facilities treatment. A lot of rehab facilities are offering treatment that does not include medicine that does not offer medication-assisted treatment. And research has shown that after one month of being at a rehab facility where the focus is to withdraw and remove yourself from whatever setting you were living in, after one month, you will have a 90% relapse rate, 90% chance that you will fail and return to opioids. By referring to rehab centers, essentially, we are setting up people for failure and then blaming them for failing. So this is not best practice. Uh, best medical practice for opioid use disorder is a hybrid of medication and counseling. And this is why it's called medication-assisted treatment. So when you say counseling, I, I guess you're talking about behavioral health right. or mental health care. Why is that an important aspect of this? It's absolutely instrumental. Um, you know, again, as a doctor, yeah, I prescribe medicine, but as a doctor, I'm fully aware of both body-mind connection, as I stated before, the biopsychosocial model. Uh, behavioral health is, behavioral health counseling is what provides the substance use counseling, provides the motivational interviewing. Uh, it provides relapse prevention strategies. And it's over the course of their treatment. So a lot of patients you know, they'll meet up with a doctor, they'll find out what medication is right for them, they'll plan to be initiated on it, and then that doctor refers you to their behavioral health counselor who you will work side by side with. And, you know, every week or maybe every two weeks and then maybe every month, you'll meet with each provider, the behavioral health therapist and the medical provider. And so it, it is important to have this ongoing counseling uh, because, again, the environmental factors are so important. Uh, the narratives that we are telling ourselves about our emotions and about our life stressors are so important. And um, I think that a lot of our listeners, 
during this time in the pandemic could really relate to that, just how important stressors affect your life. And it's no different for people with opioid use disorder. So as you mentioned, when opioids are used appropriately, they can actually serve you know, a, a good purpose for pain control. So as our patients continue to see their doctors and have those procedures done where they might need opioids for a short amount of time, how can people take charge of their own health care and make sure they don't fall into, you know, opioid use disorder? Yeah. Um, you know, I'd recommend patients asking their doctors about the same things that they would ask about any other medication or disorder. What are the benefits of being on this treatment? What are the risks? What are the alternatives? How long should I be on it, uh, beyond the medication for? Um, you know, medicine is tailored. So out of the 10 out of my last 10 diabetic, diabetic patients I've treated in the last three days, not a single pair uh, has the exactly the same pill or the exact same dose that I prescribed, or do I anticipate will be on that medicine for the exact same amount of time. And it's no different for uh, patients who are prescribed opioids or who possibly have opioid use disorder. What are your hopes and goals um, for the future, you know, in relation to the opioid epidemic? We have come a long way, you know, but there are some things that still need uh, work on. And uh, my hope is that healthcare systems and providers continue to collaborate. We need to build healthcare systems that are screening and starting people with opioid use disorder on medication assisted treatment in the emergency room department, in the inpatient services, on the prenatal uh, wards. And then we need to give them subsequent referrals to a primary care doctor like me who could continue treatment. We need to be more proactive like this. Um, there's also a grave underfunding of public health infrastructure in communities that lack access to addiction medicine treatment, and this needs to change as well. I would say another thing, and we have alluded to this, is that we need to continue to work to reduce stigma and the belief that we are trading one drug for another. This is simply not true. Buprenorphine does not kill like illicit opioids do. Buprenorphine and other medication-assisted treatments do not cause you to lose your job or miss your kid's soccer game while you're shooting up behind the bleachers. Illicit opioids do. The belief that we're trading one drug for another is simply not backed up by medical science and does not accept the reality of what the brain disease is causing. And then I would say another thing that we uh, need to work on is doctors and providers need to intersect legal and criminal justice reform. And I understand this is not my lane. This is not where I uh, trained as a professional. But disease is my lane, and we cannot prosecute our way out of addiction disease. So criminal justice reform, specifically implementing a deflection system that accurately identifies people with addiction and mental health and pipelines them into treatment programs rather than jail cells is what will prevent opioid use disorder from continuing to hurt our communities. So I know you're really passionate about this topic. Um, what are your goals for the future of healthcare with this? Yeah, Lauren. So, you know, I know most of your listeners will uh, never physically see me or even through telehealth medicine. But I also know that statistically speaking, your listeners will know someone who is struggling with this problem. And I hope that they are now more equipped than before after hearing this 
discussion that they feel more comfortable starting a non-judgmental conversation with someone who has this problem and encourages them to seek medication-assisted treatment. I also hope your listeners better understand the real side of the opioid epidemic, which is the people side. That is the life of someone with opioid use disorder. So if you or someone you know uh, may have opioid use disorder or addiction of any kind, my clinic staff at ValleyWise would love to help you. Dr. Andrew Carrasco with ValleyWise Community Health Center, South Central. Thank you so much for your time today. Really interesting conversation, and I appreciate your passion uh, for your patients. Hey, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed listening to Valley Well Via Salute, a health and wellness information program brought to you by ValleyWise Health and District Medical Group. If you're looking for more information about what you heard today, visit us online at valleywisehealth.org slash bewell. There, you'll find blogs and videos from our healthcare providers, and you can even book an appointment at a ValleyWise Community Health Center near you. That's valleywisehealth.org slash bewell. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll tune in again soon.